HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, folks. Yes, it's Monday, and it's 12 o'clock, and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Get out your pen and paper. Take notes. I got a great show for you today. But we're going to start with a little Joyce and Sorrow segment because there were a couple stories that caught my eye before uh, I came into the studio today. And um, the first one is really very inspiring. It's inspiring, and at the same time, like many of my Joyce and Sorrow segments, it fills me with joy, but also with sorrow. Joy because this exists and sorrow because we are unlikely to uh, replicate it here in the United States. But we can always hope. And so here is the deal. In case you didn't see this, and you may not have because I saw it in one of the trades that I read. Uh, <clears throat> uh, what is his name? Emmanuel Macron, the uh, French prime minister, has just delivered legislation. Listen to this. This is amazing. Has just delivered legislation that ties food prices to producer costs. Okay, think about what that means for a minute. So in other words, instead of being able to buy hamburger for $1.99 a pound, okay, I know it isn't that cheap, but still, um, all of those externalized costs are on the taxpayer, but we don't know it. Instead, all of the costs that go into actually raising that beef and giving the farmer a fair wage is factored into the price to the consumer. That doesn't exist in this country, okay? So um, the the... The, there's no beat down on the prices by uh, like something like a Walmart. And believe me, the French have their share of supermarkets. I mean, it's not all the cute, quaint country market square. It's like they, they've got a very competitive, and in fact, they've been involved in sort of a, a grocery price war, um, which has continually undermined and undercut their agricultural population. And that's why Macron has stepped in to create this legislation that says that farmers must be paid a fair 
price for their products. The prices will be set by the farmers or the agricultural organization that represents the farmers rather than the other way around where the price is set by somebody like Walmart. Um, See how simple that is and see how fair. And they are not expecting consumer prices to rise excessively. Um, This is just, you know, foresight and and far-sighted and just altogether laudable legislation. Um, and it would be really nice if we had something even vaguely approaching uh, and a, something like this for our farming community. Okay, next up, protein of the future. It's not mealworms. It's not crickets. It's not grasshoppers. It's fruit flies. Yes, because they can be harvested in six days as opposed to two weeks like crickets or grasshoppers or mealworms. It's the protein of the future, my friends. Um, edible insect insect launches are up 58% um, between 2011 and 2015. And what's more interesting about this story about the fruit flies, um, which is a company called, um, uh, it's called Flying Spark, actually. Um, it's being um, supported by the giant Scandinavian company IKEA of furniture fame. And what they're doing is they're giving, um, they're giving them some startup money and they are giving them a three-month incubator opportunity in which they develop a protein which IKEA will then serve in all of their restaurants. So obviously fruit fly protein, which apparently is wildly nutritious, full of iron, calcium, magnesium, um, perhaps even more nutritious than other insects that have been um, touted as sort of the protein of the future and our and the future of our cuisine. Um, fruit fly powder, which is what it will be, obviously, instead of being obliged to deal with your ick factor, you get to like have it processed into a flower and then it turns into whatever you want. I think it sounds great. I can't wait to be able to get some. Okay, and lastly, and then I will stop doing joys and sorrows because we have an amazing guest today. Um, lastly, if you did not see this piece uh, that was broken in the news in the New York Times yesterday, and then uh, all over uh, the news in the Washington Post picked it up, um, I think the Atlantic did. Uh, anyway, what has happened is there was supposed to be a giant conference in Providence, Rhode Island. There is a giant conference in Providence, Rhode Island to talk about estuaries uh, in general, Narragansett Bay in particular, which is kind of a... Um, Uh, both a bellwether and also a driving economic force in the New England area. Well, yesterday, the EPA, without any explanation, withdrew the presentations of three of the main scientists who were expected to present at this event. And their papers all involved climate change and how climate change is affecting uh, water quality, acidification of the oceans, um, you know, the whole sort of food chain... from you know, from from mussels to uh, to flying fish, and uh, all of this stuff was supposed to be a big review on how we can uh, start trying to protect our oceans, and the EPA has basically shut that down. So this, in my opinion, is essentially a totalitarian move on the part of this government. And once again, you know, if you were thinking to be complacent, don't. It's time to resist, resist, resist once again. I mean, this is outrageous and. Uh, I think we all should be calling our congressman about it. Anyway, that's it for Joyce and Sorrows. We'll be back in just a second with Carrie Gillum. She is going to be talking to us about her fantastic new book, Whitewash, which is all about glyphosate and the shenanigans uh, behind um, both its uh, development, its rollout, and all of the science that has uh, either been um, altered, tweaked, suppressed, or otherwise um, bastardized. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with that just after the sponsor drop. And um, we do love our Bob's Red Mill. So buy their products. Thank you.
I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years and plus. Each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife Charlie started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are talking with veteran journalist Carrie Gillum, a researcher and writer with more than 25 years of experience in the news industry covering corporate America. Since 1998, Gillum's work has focused on digging into the big business of food and agriculture. As a former senior correspondent for Reuters International News Service and a current research director for consumer group U.S. Right to Know, Gillum specializes in finding the story behind the spin uncovering both the risks and rewards of the evolving new age of agriculture. Gillum's area of expertise includes biotech crop technology, agrochemicals and pesticide product development, and the environmental impacts of America's food production. She joins me today to discuss her new book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Welcome to the show and congratulations. Great book. Thanks so much for joining oh, me. thank you. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh, it was my pleasure. Well, after we talked, I guess it was about six months ago, because I think a little excerpt of your book was out in uh, some publication that I connected with, and um, and I was just fascinated by that. So we had to talk about sort of that whole Jess Rowland corruption piece with, you know, the <laughs> EPA colluding with Monsanto to suppress studies. So I can't say that I was entirely surprised by the content of whitewash. <laughs> right, right. Um, yes. But it Which was, sad, right? yeah, it was, I mean, the whole thing, let's, well, first of all, let's start with the fact that, as you told me yesterday, um, and I tweeted this out today, Monsanto has been busily sliming your review page on Amazon, uh, yeah. panning your book, which seems both incredibly petty, uh, as well as incredibly sort of jejun somehow. I feel like it's, you know, it's sort of not worthy of a giant multinational corporation to get that great 
granular uh, when it comes to discrediting somebody, but I think that's kind of their stock and trade, right? Well, I mean, yes, it is. And what we, you know, what I lay out in whitewash and, and what we've seen coming out through court documents and through discovery and what we have through freedom of information documents shows this is part of the playbook mm-hmm. for Monsanto and others in the chemical industry. They they refer to it as let nothing go. And they have sort of wow. armies of individuals who monitor social media, their, their work on Twitter and Facebook pages and book reviews and things like that. And, and the job the goal, the marching orders really are to take down, tear down anybody, scientists, journalists, just everyday mom and pop who might say anything critical or raise concerns about their products. And mm-hmm. and and this is, you know, it's masterful, really, um, because it helps really control the narrative and control uh, the conversation uh, and influences what, you know, members of the public think, policymakers. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not unlike sort of the whole information we're learning about the Russian I was just you know, gonna say troll army right for the election. I mean if you know how to manipulate social media, you're pretty powerful in yes. this day and age. Yes. I mean, I, I, you know, I had so many questions for you, but that was one of them. You know, I, I mean, I had a lot of stuff hit the editing floor, but but that was definitely an analogy that I jumped to right away. It was like, oh, my God, how familiar is this? You know, like, yeah. and this is what the tobacco industry did as well. Pharmaceutical industries do it. I mean, it is ubiquitous in these large corporations to try to suppress uh, anything that comes out that's negative in any way about one of their products, as you just said. Um, it's right. just, it's a remarkable thing, but you've been on this glyphosate story for a long time, like 15 years, right? I mean, basically since the, the product was rolled out, can you, what, what, I mean, what, what got you going on it? Cause at first it just seemed like so benign and such a miracle right. for everyone. Right, right. Well, first, let's say it was it was rolled out in 1974 and I'm not that okay, old. Okay. You're not so. that old. All right. But I feel uh, like since the nineties anyway, right? Right, right. So I started covering this for Reuters uh, in 1998, and my job was to learn everything about food and agriculture and the major players, you know, and those companies at that time were Monsanto and Dow and DuPont, Syngenta and the others. And so my job for Reuters, the international news agency, was to learn as much as possible so we could tell, you know, our readers around the world about the companies, about their products, about their strategies, uh, you know, the upside, the downside, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah, my job was to learn everything about this really important chemical product uh, for Monsanto, which brings in billions of dollars a year, you know, for the company as well as other companies now. And, you know, so that's how I started learning, researching, tracking it. And, yeah, for many, many years, you know, if you say the word glyphosate, which is the name of the synthetic chemical, <laughs> you know, people's eyes glaze over, right? Yeah. Um, but most of us know it as, as Roundup. You yep. know, that's Monsanto's popular branded product. A lot of people might have it in their garage. It's used yep. by farmers on food crops all around the world. Um, but it's become really controversial because a lot of research has shown human health concerns and links to cancer and other diseases. Uh, and, and we've also seen a rise in a, in a lot of environmental problems because of the widespread use of this chemical. It's the most widely used herbicide in, in history mm-hmm. uh, around the world. So how many pounds? Give us an idea of how many pounds of glyphosate are pumped into our environment every year. You can just do the United States or you can do globally. I don't care which, right. but I so want people to get it, a sense of it, the scale. It's, it's hard to track. A lot of people have done that. I mean, for instance, about 40 million pounds in the mid-1990s, and then Monsanto introduced its uh, genetically engineered crops that right. it was designed specifically for farmers to spray with this 
herbicide Roundup. And so now our most recent information is about 280 million pounds in the United States. So you can see the dramatic rise just in the U.S. of this chemical over the last 20 years. It's, um, and that's sevenfold. going directly yeah. into our food production and into our foods and into our bodies. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is... I don't know. That's scary as hell. Anyway, but so let's talk a little bit about that, those early days, because according to your book, um, in the 1980s and 90s, there were some negative studies. Um, but how did the EPA respond to that? I mean, it seems to me that they, they sort of shoveled those under the rug or the studies were not sufficiently conclusive. What, why, why weren't those studies you know, more uh, widely uh, observed? Right. Well, again, I mean, Monsanto works very hard to turn down, turn back any negative research studies. Now, one of the most cited, most well-known, sort of most um, interesting, I guess, anyway, to me, is a 1983 study that Monsanto actually paid to have done. Uh, It was a very long, very large study on mice. Uh, who were dosed, you know, given glyphosate. And Monsanto turned the study over to the EPA, and the EPA toxicology branch looked at it and said, wow, this stuff looks like it causes cancer. <laughs> all these mice have all these rare tumors. Oh, no. So we think this stuff is possibly carcinogenic. And Monsanto said, no, no, no. You know, all those tumors, that that's just chance. That's just, that's you know, false positives. They don't have anything to do with cancer, with glyphosate. And the EPA toxicologist said, you're crazy. It clearly has something to do with glyphosate. Anyway, this battle went on actually for years hmm. between EPA toxicologists and Monsanto. And Monsanto finally prevailed. The EPA at one point asked Monsanto re- to redo the study. Monsanto refused. And ultimately, by 1991, uh, Monsanto had put enough pressure, you can see in the documents, on top officials within the EPA that the toxicologists within the EPA were basically told to be quiet and go away. Uh, and they reversed the earlier concerns about cancer. So, I mean, that's just one example in one study, but we've seen that over and over and over again. Now, the most recent independent review of glyphosate, which was done by a working group of the World Health Organization, Mm -hmm. looked at a whole lot of studies, toxicology and epidemiology, that were independent of Monsanto and said, this probably causes cancer. All of this research put together shows it probably causes cancer. And that's that was 2015, and since then, we've just seen Monsanto and the chemical industry throw everything they can uh, at this this World Health Organization group to try to discredit them and to try to protect this chemical. Yeah, incredible. I'm, I'm so. taking I'm taking that in. I'm just taking that in. Yeah, I mean they have. I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit later, but you bring it up now. You just sort of bring up the point now, which is that you know even it's you know part of your book title is the corruption of science, right? So even some of the, I mean the people who did were disc, who were discredited, but then there were other people who just were shills, independent quote unquote independent scientists. But they were bought and paid for, essentially, by Monsanto as well. And that, I think, was both on a government level and on a university level. And I wondered if you wanted to talk to her for just a second, because we have so much other ground to cover, um, about the corruption of science in general and how hard it must be to actually identify and get scientific research that truly is independent. Can you address that at all for me? The regulatory documents and Monsanto's own documents, you see Monsanto talking internally about ghost writing studies, yeah. about 
trying to find scientists that they can pay and that those scientists will then promote the safety of their product, and they'll put those scientists' names on research documents, but the Monsanto scientists will actually write the documents. They talk about this in their internal memos and their internal emails to each other, and they cite some of the studies they say they've done this for. So, I mean, to somebody like me who, you know, I want to trust in the, you know, science that you see In the integrity of scientists, absolutely. It's kind of critical. Yes, I mean, it's... It's really frustrating for people who just want the truth, you know, because it is so manipulated. And we see them sending money to public research universities and then enlisting the professors who benefit from that money to, you know, do presentations that, that will promote their products. I mean, it's just. It goes on and on and, and it's on. And it's quite ubiquitous. I mean, it is not just a United States phenomenon, right? This is happening all over the world, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, you know, was just in Europe speaking to the European Parliament about right. this because many of the scientists you see in the documents who they're paying are, are in Europe as well. And they talk mm-hmm. about how they really need people in Europe to carry the flag because European, you know, regulators and scientists and others are raising so many concerns. And yeah. the Europe, Europe right now is is in a very hot debate about whether or not to ban this chemical. Yes, I've been uh, following and, that, actually. It's been really interesting. I mean, and at one point, I think it was you who reported that they, they barred the Monsanto lobbyists from even coming into the European Union Parliament discussions around you know, the sort of multinational discussions around whether or not glyphosate would continue to be used in EU countries. What, what was that all about, actually? What was going on there? They came, they were trying to buy the politicians? Well, so the parliament held a joint hearing on October 11. Right. Uh, joint committees held a hearing to try to get to the bottom of this and understand, you know, the information coming out in the documents about manipulated science, but then the conflicting information that says, no, the science is safe. And they invited Monsanto to appear at this hearing and answer questions. Monsanto refused to show up. And so the parliament was so angry, they said, you want to come here and lobby us, but you don't want to actually answer questions in a public forum, so we're going to ban all of your lobbyists. So that that was kind of how that worked out. That's kind of, I mean, amazing. Politicians with integrity. Who knew? <laughs> we don't do that in the U.S. We, we don't do like, that do we? here. No, we don't. Um, one of the things that really struck me um, is that the EPA has continuously, I mean, I don't have to ask you why this has happened, but I, I think it is kind of notable, um, that the EPA has continuously upped the levels of safe glyphosate and, you know, safe levels of glyphosate in food and water. You know, how do they get away with that without even actually doing any testing or, you know, subscribing to any kind of study that would show yes or no? They just arbitrarily do that? I mean, I don't, I don't understand how that works. Yeah, so um, so the uh, EPA essentially works with industry. They work with, um, you know, Monsanto's scientists and others, and the chemical companies want their uh, increased tolerances. They're called maximum residue limits or maximum residue levels Mm -hmm. that can be allowed legally in food. And so the chemical company will go to EPA and say, you know, we've done tests to see how much of this is going to be sprayed on this crop. This is how much we expect will be left in the crop when people consume it. Uh, And the EPA looks at those numbers, and if they think that that's agreeable or safe, then they sign off on it. And Monsanto, you can see in the records, has repeatedly gone back to the EPA to raise what are considered these legal safe levels in food. And we have 
much higher levels that are considered legal mm-hmm. uh, and safe than does Europe or any other, you know, other countries. So, uh, you know, the EPA says it does a thorough analysis and makes sure that these things are safe, but it is interesting that they continue to raise them when the companies ask them to do so. Right. And without doing any independent studies of their own to confirm that the agent that the company supported studies are actually accurate or even, you know, close to that. Um, Another thing that really struck me was there is a a total, apparently a dearth of basic research into the chemical combinations that characterize most of these agrochemicals. For example, uh, you know, uh, glyphosate is combined routinely with, um, I, I think, P. OEA is one of the drugs, I mean, one of the chemicals, and then there's the surfactants that help it adhere. And nobody has really done any studies that aggregate those chemicals and see what kind of new compounds they're forming and the impacts on human and environmental health in those cases. And I'm just curious why you think there has been, like, even no, apparently no independent research into that. Can you discuss that a little bit? Well, there has been some independent research, and, and that's some of the research that uh, is the most damning or damaging, mm. really. Uh, scientists who look at the full combination, they call it formula, you know, glyphosate-based formulations or the full formulated products, and that would be like in the case of Roundup for many years, glyphosate combined with, as you said, POEA, um, which is a surfactant that helps it stick adhere to leaves and be absorbed into the plant. But what they've found is that these combinations are more toxic, more damaging than glyphosate by itself. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that is is really concerning. Europe banned POEA. And so Monsanto has, has basically had to remove POEA from its products recently. But for the last several decades, you know, POEA and glyphosate were combined. Now, Monsanto itself, in its own documents, admits it hasn't done extensive testing on formulated products. The EPA admits it has not required extensive testing on formulated products, which kind of makes consumers, you know, all of us out here go, that seems crazy. Because that's what we're actually, you know, using and what's being applied to our food and our land and is in our water. And um, But, you know, the regulations didn't require it. So. And why 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 is that? I mean, why is that is that across the board? Like, you know, okay, so not just agrochemicals, but any, you know, I think about like in the food industry, there's generally regarded as safe, right? Isn't right. that isn't that grass? The grass, grass. And, yeah. and so and so that's like so there'll be a product that was approved in the 1950s and now it's combined with a new product, but because the old product is in it and that was generally regarded as safe, then they don't have to retest to see if there's this new combination has any sort of toxicology associated with it. And so basically, you're saying the same thing happens with the EPA in terms of determining um, these, you know, how these agrochemicals play out in combination. And I I, I find that just astonishing, like a real failure. In regulation. It seems like it is indeed, and EPA has been working to address that and examine that issue and has been considering, you know, expanding the regulations to require more formulated product mm-hmm. testing to consider possible synergies or, you know, reactions that these chemicals would have. But but you're right, I mean they haven't they haven't required it. The requirement focuses on what they call the active ingredient, you know, the chemical right. that's doing the work. And in the case of Roundup, glyphosate is what kills the weeds. It's the weed killer, the active ingredient. So that was the focus. But, 
Yeah, I mean, there are many. It's it's. <laughs> I've heard. It's amazing. We're all still alive. Book and they just. It's not a feel good book, you know. That you read it, and you're like, are you kidding me? Oh yeah, no. I mean, my I was hair, frankly, it was kind of hair raising in some places. It was just like part of it. I was like, okay, business as usual. You know, like I've been doing this quite a while, so you know, hardly anything surprises me. But that surprised me quite mightily. And then the other thing that's really surprised me that I actually like, you know. took this whole quote out was you cite the little known fact that the quote, the mandate of the EPA is not only to examine how a pesticide affects human and environmental well-being, but also how it affects the financial well-being of agricultural players. So in other words, you're saying that the EPA's job is to promote agro companies. And that to me is a clear conflict of interest. I don't know. How did that happen? How do they get to do Uh. that? Well, I mean, again, <laughs> we're a capitalistic nation, right? Yeah. Now, now the EPA, I don't think I say it's to promote their interests, or maybe I did. I don't think I did, but uh, not in a promotional way, but they are supposed to take in consideration economic impacts on right. agribusiness, on, on farmers and people who distribute and sell and grow and, you know, and and that's an important element that they do consider that they that they take into consideration. And a lot of people right now, you know, as they're scrutinizing glyphosate, are bringing that up. You know, they're saying, well, if you ban it, then the farmer costs will go up, and this will happen, and we'll right. have all of these cataclysmic, you know, economic uh, reactions to this. They're talking about that rather than talking about the health impacts. So that's a pretty common thing. I mean, now, and our USDA and our State Department very directly do promote uh, corporate interests. And oh, that's sure. that's another, I think that's in the book as well. But that is yeah. part of their mandate to promote agricultural interests around the world, which, you know, that seems to be a definite conflict of interest because, of course, <laughs> USDA is also supposed to have a regulatory uh, role. Yes, absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, sort of the cataclysmic effects um, of banning glyphosate, I mean, there are, I follow a, a group called the Food and Farm Discussion Lab. Do you know that? Do you ever no, look at that? No, I should follow you it. Should, it's on <laughs> Facebook. It's a very interesting group. Um, okay. It is on Facebook and you have to ask to join and, you know, it's whatever. It's run by a guy named Mark Brezzo, who I actually interviewed a few weeks ago um, because I was so fascinated by the whole food and farm discussion lab. Anyway, they are a huge group of people who are engaged in, actively engaged in agriculture and they love glyphosate. And they are very, very anti uh, people like you who would suggest that glyphosate is not the miracle cure that they think it is. And even though they must be experiencing the phenomenon of super weeds or the fact that they have to add more, more and more uh, pounds of, of this herbicide to their you know, routine uh, spraying of their fields, and, and even more so that they, they are now having to, because of the failure of the technology overall, now that they have to add 2,4-D or dicamba or other unknown products, like you'd think they would be kind of freaking out over this, but they love glyphosate. And I wondered how, you know, how, how, how can we wean farmers who haven't seen the light yet off of this use of chemical? Because they seem to really rely on it. I mean, that is a true economic issue for them. Um, right. No, you, I, you're right about that. Now, I guess my first question would be, is this a legitimate group or was this set oh, up yeah. by a Monsanto PR group? Definitely because not. that is one of the things that they do and have done, and we know that through their documents, that they set up different groups that are made to look uh, independent and made to look like they're real. And, and maybe this one is. I mean, I don't know. They've. It looks like it's uh, 
got a nutritionist back backing of it. And, you know, Monsanto did set up a nutritionist group uh-huh. uh, a couple of years ago to to take over some social media discussions. So who knows? But um, I it could be. I mean, you raise a whole new point for me. But I in, in following this group, which I have done for about a year, um, that has not been my sense of it that I mean, there may be industry trolls who actually opine on certain issues. But the guy who runs it, um, who was frankly quite eccentric, um, you did not seem, I mean, he actually shut it down for a while because the discourse became so divisive mm. and unpleasant. Okay. And then yeah. he revived Who it knows? recently. It's, so it's I, so I, I look forward to hearing things. you check it out. I want to hear what you think of it. You know, like when you have a chance right, to really right, delve right. in there. Um, but I, I think that's a huge problem. Um, you know, cause if these guys are not confronting the, you know, the six foot weeds with the two inch stalks that you describe in the book, which, you know, I didn't think of super weeds as literally being kind of like, you know, super giant, you know, plant life, kind of like Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know? Right. I didn't either. I think I said that in my book, too. I, you know, I heard all these farmers, this is, you know, mid-2000s, who were starting to really mm-hmm. complain about these superweeds. And I was like, ah, you know, so it's a weed. You're having, you know. But when I actually started touring the fields, that was my reaction. I was like, holy cow. Yeah. That thing's taller than I am. And, yeah. you know, how would you? And I think farmers... My discussions with farmers have evolved. They did all think miracle, miracle herbicide. We love this thing. This is the best thing ever. That has changed because it doesn't work as well anymore in the field. And because a lot of farmers either have cancer or know other farmers who have cancer. I mean, there's, but, but farmers primarily are seeing the changes in their soil and they're seeing weed resistance. They're having to use more of this chemical to deal with the weeds, yeah. or they're having to combine it with other chemicals that are known to be dangerous as well. Right. So it's not the miracle, you know, be all end all that it used to be. Yeah. Um, I actually consider all of it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to say I consider the whole GMO experiment basically a failed technology for exactly this reason. Like it does not work because they do develop super weeds and we do develop super pests. And you can't keep, you know, that's a treadmill that you can never get off of. You know, you're having to keep adding more and more different products in order to control the stuff that you've created, these Franken-monsters. So anyway, I interrupt too much, sorry. I mean, you could get off of it uh, by changing the paradigm and and realizing Mm -hmm. that pouring more pesticides onto a landscape that's become resistant to pesticides isn't a long-term solution. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's where we are right now, and that's been pushed, a strategy pushed, of course, by the chemical industry uh, to just keep raising the amounts of pesticides that we're putting onto our onto our fields, even the insect resistant GMO technology for the insect, uh, you know, these plants that would be toxic to insects. Well, the insects have gotten around that and they've learned to be resistant. So now we're having to use more insecticides. So, you know, it, it may have started out as a good idea or a good thing, but it didn't necessarily work out that way because it's, uh, you know, it's leading to degradation of the environment and human health. Absolutely. Um, and we're going to get to that in a second, because I really want to dig into like the human health aspect. Um, but I wanted to say one thing about um, about this, you know, sort of treadmill that they're on. And that is that a lot of farmers, and this is by no means the majority, but there is a significant population of probably about 28% of farms now are operated by non-owners, meaning that the it's a tenant farmer, right? So sure. a tenant yeah. farmer has a lot less incentive to be a good steward of his land because basically once that land is spent, um, either he's not going to be able to continue his lease because the landowner is going to say, 
you know, this is, I'm not making enough money anymore off of you. Or he's going to say, I can't get the crop yield that I need to make my nut. Um, but either way, I think that one of the reasons that, you know, one of the things that is troubling about this whole scenario is that people who don't have as much of an investment in maintaining the quality of their soil or who don't understand how much these chemicals disrupt soil ecology, that they just continue to pour that stuff on willy nilly. And apparently they can take the financial hit that, you know, is required to pay for all of that. And I, I think that's one factor that's really sort of overlooked in a lot of these discussions is that that there are a significant number of large farms um, owned by agribusinesses like Archer Daniel Midland or Cargill, uh, where it's it's you know it's not an individual farmer who's worrying about his what he's going to pass on to his kids, right? And yes, and that is true. We've seen a real uh, diminishment in the numbers of you know small family-owned farms yeah. around around the country over the last few decades, and kids aren't you know wanting to take over their dad's farm anymore. And you're right. So we're seeing a lot of tenant farmers. We're seeing a lot of lease land, and that does. Uh, encourage a more short-term outlook. Yeah, I think so. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about the collateral damage of Roundup? Because besides the super weeds, uh, there's damage to certain species. I think, um, isn't glyphosate implicated in some of the honeybee, or is that just neonics, neonicotinoids? So, well, yeah. So there are sort of a, an array of environmental woes, I guess, that have been associated with the overuse of this chemical. And the, the weed resistance is a big one. That That's huge for farmers. People don't yeah. understand how how damaging that is to their production and their cost structure when they right. can't fight these weeds. So. Uh, that's one element. The soil um, degradation in, impacting the health of the soil and the sustainability of the soil is another big problem. And when you don't have healthy soil, your your plant is going to be more vulnerable to disease and, right. and less healthy itself, which leads many farmers then to add more, you know, fertilizer perhaps or, you know, fungicide or others. Mm-hmm. So, again, you're kind of on this treadmill. Um, it has definitely been associated with the demise of the monarch butterfly. Yes, that's uh, right. You know, because of, of the killing off of all of the milkweed and the and the nutrients for the monarch butterfly. And then um, in terms of honeybees, y- yes. I mean, not to the extent that neonicotinoids that you mentioned, the insecticide neon- neonicotinoid, uh, has been tied to dramatic declines in honeybee populations. Yes. Of course, we need honeybees because they pollinate our food, right? That's right. Um, no food, no bees. I mean, no bees, no food. Right, 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 right. But but it is uh, affecting the honeybees, and, and as we know that, and we can see that because we see glyphosate in honey. It's Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, the FDA found it in, in every honey sample that they, you know, looked at, including organic honey, mm-hmm. you know. So, again, this is pervasive in our environment and not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> well, I, well, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the health implications because one of the things that, um, you know, sort of frustrated me actually um, in reading your book is that with all of these, you know, various studies, they all point to connections between, you know, renal disease or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or other, you know, really negative health impacts, uh, particularly for people who work in close contact with these uh, chemicals, like the farming population, the grow, uh, you know, people who pick fruit or vegetables for a living, that kind of thing. But also, um, you know, every one of us is now harboring a certain residue of glyphosate. But the thing that really bugged me was there isn't, I mean, there's a, there's, there's no definitive study that says, absolutely, yes, we can say that this is 
a cause for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I'm sure you found that frustrating too. It's like, where is that definitive study in all of the many hundreds and hundreds of pages of research that have been done on this? You know, like, why aren't we seeing that smoking gun? It's just, you know, I just was like, ah, because otherwise we can't shut it down, right? Well, yes, but I mean, what I... What I've come to understand is that that is sort of the nature of scientific research, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, scientists do their research. They do a two-year or an 18-month or, you know, a toxicology study, and there are epidemiology studies that are done. And what they do is they share these, and they publish these, and they're Mm -hmm. in peer-reviewed journals, and the scientific community looks at those. And, I mean, this is how you eventually develop a consensus. It's usually not, here's one study, you know, and this one study is the holy grail. It's it's the compilation of years of work that are done by numerous scientists uh, that eventually leads us and our scientific community to an agreement or a consensus. And, and that has always really been sort of seen in the International Agency for Research on Cancer. These people have always been highly esteemed as the, the experts. And in this case with glyphosate, they're being torn to shreds because mm-hmm. Monsanto didn't, didn't like the outcome. Um, I mean, the other, you know, the other thing is that the chemical companies are the ones that have the money and spend the most money doing the research. And sure. they're the ones who have a very vested interest in how the research turns out. So, you know, and, and I guess the other element is you, we don't do experiments on people, you know. Yeah, although we <laughs> right? are. We are. We're doing it right now because we all harboring glyphosate <laughs> and any number of other chemicals, you know, that really, as you've just pointed out in your book, haven't actually been tested appropriately for, uh, you know, their implications for human health. So, right, you know, we're right. all I mean, a guinea one pig. One of the things that the, the scientists at the EPA special... Um, scientific advisory panel really were dismayed about and talked to Monsanto about was a lack of testing of people who work at glyphosate manufacturing plants, people who work with glyphosate, because this would be a very good way to have a a sort of captive population and track incidence of disease in these people who are exposed to this chemical on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. A lot of manufacturers of chemicals do that or, you know, are expected to do that. Monsanto doesn't. And Does not. they, you know, were concerned about that. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, again, it's, it's a hard thing to say this one chemical causes this one disease. Uh, but eventually, usually the research community gets us there. Right, right. And that brings me to um, yet another point that you make and a, and a really chilling uh, quote. Um, you point out that in uh, 2008, the Union for Concerned Scientists, um, quote, unveiled a devastating indictment of just how far the integrity of government scientists had fallen. So I, I wondered if you would describe that and the implications for all of us when you know, I mean, what, you know, we're going to go back to the beginning of the show here, but what, you know, what does all this mean, essentially, uh, going forward when we cannot trust our, our basic research institutions to deliver um, unbiased opinions on products like glyphosate or uh, their corollaries? Like, you know, where yeah. does it end? Where does this end? Well, again, I mean, this is corporate profits prioritized over public safety. And we have a system that allows a lot of money to flow to our lawmakers um, through lobbying and campaign contributions and otherwise. And those lawmakers put a lot of pressure, you know, some of them when requested to, on our political appointees at our regulatory agencies. 
And that trickles down. And we've seen that it isn't just the Trump administration. It, you know, we no. saw it in Obama. We saw it with Bush. You know, it's sort of the historic, you know, way we get things done in Washington. Money carries a lot of power. Yeah. And, yeah, that what we've seen through set, um, through uh, reports and um, um, that – what's the word I'm trying to say? Uh, surveys. Right. Scientists within these organizations um, that they do report, you know, real, real problems with suppression and censorship of their work. Mm-hmm. These are people trying to do the public – work, trying to protect right. us. And what they find time and time again is if their reports, their analysis, their studies don't dovetail with corporate interests, they get hammered. They get shut down or they get their reports changed or altered or edited. We've seen it over and over and over again. Right. Or it their reputation so is impugned. When Obama took um, office that he implemented a new scientific advisory policy, scientific integrity policy to try to protect these scientists and it still didn't really work. I mean, there's just, it's too entrenched. The political pressure is too entrenched. It's, it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so, it's so shameful to me. I just find the whole thing so shameful. It's just like, oh my God, you you really truly do feel like you're waiting in quicksand in this country right now, I think. You do. You do. The only thing I say, and maybe this is half in jest, at least what we're seeing with the Trump administration is they don't really try to hide it that much. I mean, right. they're kind of out there, you know, saying, no, we're shutting these guys down. You know, like what you, how you opened the show. Yeah. We're not letting our scientists go speak about climate change right. issues and concerns. You know, we're going to reverse the ban, the proposed ban on chlorpyrifos, even though right. all the science shows it causes brain damage to children. Right. <laughs> and it's children to be banned. <laughs> Dow Chemical gave us a million dollars to the Trump inaugural fund, and guess what? It's going to stay on the market. I mean, yeah. they're not. They're more transparent with their collusion and corruption, perhaps. Yes, that's true. And I guess if there are a few people out there paying attention to that, you know, I, I kind of despair. But maybe, maybe that's that's what's going on. And one last thing was I noticed today, again, on that Food and Farm Discussion Lab, um, and I think even in the paper, there was a, a sort of a, a Reuters story. I'm sure you saw it about the IARC findings around glyphosate. Mm-hmm. That was just a today, and I didn't get to read the story, but I wondered if you, uh, you know, had seen it and wanted to comment on it. Yeah, I've seen it. It's very dismaying. <laughs> this is by a journalist. I mean, you know, I used to be a colleague, I guess, I know. a journalist within Reuters who has um, done some promotional videos and promotional work for the Science Media Center, which is a chemical company funded uh, organization. Mm. Uh, she seems to have very close ties. But but this uh, story, in in my view, it omits some really important information. She basically, it, Monsanto shopped the story. This was a story that they presented to Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and Reuters. Kate Kelland is the only one who picked it up. And it basically asserts that the IARC working group um, discounted important studies and important findings and discounted investigators' evidence um, of non-carcinogenicity with glyphosate. What she failed to say was, these were ones that were funded by Monsanto, or <laughs> the investigators that they discounted were the ones who were paid by Monsanto. And she even cited that 1983 mouse study I told you about. Right. And she didn't say it was paid for by Monsanto, didn't say EPA found evidence of carcinogenicity in that. She simply said, this, you know, this was a great study, and, Mon- and IARC didn't look at it, and they should have. So, you know, when you leave out information that's relevant, it's 
can skew a story pretty dramatically. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's like saying, well, there was a fire, but you don't say who started it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I mean, the only thing I can encourage is people, if you, if you read on thousands and thousands of pages of studies and documents, yeah. I guess like I have, it seems pretty clear, but I can understand for others, it's pretty murky. Well, you know, Marion Nessel, um, who I'm sure you know, uh, has a has a wonderful feature on her um, food politics blog, and that is she aggregates um, studies that she gets, which she gets constantly, and then she follows the money. She sees who paid for yeah. them, you know, and she reports who paid for this study on sugar, who paid for that study on fat, who paid for this study on whatever. And she shows people like, you know, you really have to look behind the byline and see where those people are being funded from. And, you know, that's one of the more important lessons I think we all need to take home because in this day of when, you know, scientists are routinely corrupted and whatever their best interests may have been, you know, however, however much integrity they may have had in the past, I mean, money talks, there's no question. So now is the time we have arrived at the time where you promote yourself shamelessly. Oh, oh dear Lord. <laughs> Don't be shy, Carrie. Come on. Where's your website? Tell people about that, how they can, you know, listen to you speak, where you're going to be speaking, where you blog, okay. where you write, you know, all of that stuff. Okay. Well, thank you. Yes. I, I have a website, www.carriegillam.com. It's C-A-R-E-Y, which is a little unusual, G-I-L-L-A-M. I blog on Huffington Post, uh, mostly about these issues. U.S. Rights Know, uh, where I direct research. We have a lot of information about sugar issues and uh, chemical food additives and, of course, the agrochemicals. And we're tracking, if anybody cares, a lot of lawyers and reporters do, uh, we're tracking the uh, lawsuits that have been filed against Monsanto yeah. and all of the discovery documents that are coming out. And I take those from the court dockets and post them on our page so that people don't have to pay the court right. system and can actually read for themselves a lot of these things that we've been talking about. So that's all on U.S. Right to Know, which is usrtk.org. Because, again, I don't... People don't need to believe what I say, but I can help direct them to the the documents themselves, you right. know, so that they can read and understand and educate themselves. Because really, that's why I'm a journalist. That's why I get into this. I'm not telling people what to do or what to think. I'm just trying to bring relevant and timely information to light, and then people can make up their own minds. Absolutely. Right? I mean, if you, if you think that scientific studies financed by the chemical company that sells the chemical are more legitimate than the independent scientist that doesn't have a stake in the game, that's your that's, that's good. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, that's your problem. To believe that, you know. <laughs> right. but, well, <clears throat> yeah. No, I think that's so, you know that's laudable. U.S. Right to Know, U.S.R.T.K. Everybody put that in their notes for today's show. Um, and Carrie, thank you so much for doing the due diligence and all the work that is so clearly evident in Whitewash. It was a terrific book, very interesting reading, highly recommended, especially to my agricultural uh, community uh, who listens to this show. You know, get some more information about this because it's going to affect everybody, not just you know not just the big players. Um, and thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you to my sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. We couldn't do it without them. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Take care now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.